Translation Confidential. I'm Peter Argandizo, and I'm joined by Patrick Daly. <laughs> and we are here to discuss RFPs. We wanted to talk a little bit about translation RFPs and add a little bit of color. It's um, obviously a uh, topic that's, uh, I guess, much talked about in our industry, maybe much maligned. Um, procurement people don't tend to be the most popular people in our industry, but I think if we can maybe provide a little bit of valuable information, uh, hopefully we can assist people in doing better RFPs. Patrick, why don't you get us started? What is an RFP? Sure. So an RFP stands for Request for Proposal. So usually corporations will do this when they're looking to undertake a large translation effort. So it's a little bit larger scale than maybe just a one-off project. So it's kind of to find a provider that can meet your needs as a company. So why do why do people get upset over RFPs? Why do people in our industry get upset? Like what what goes into an RFP? Mm -hmm. What's what is it made up of? So it's a lot of work. It's basically they want your whole company profile, your pricing, your turnaround time. So it's a lot of effort that you have to expend to possibly not even earn any business. So that may be why some translation agencies have a little bit of a sour note when they mention RFPs. And um, I think it's interesting to note too that there are times when. Um, you know, there might be 15 parties invited to an RFP. I know we did one once that we happened to win, but there were 15 agencies invited, and I can't imagine the task. Um, I guess why don't we speak to a little bit about, you know, the questions. Um, I think sometimes uh, some of the questions are misguided. Do you have any favorites or ones that you think, boy, those are pretty odd, or if you don't, I, I certainly do? Um, yeah, I mean, some questions... You kind of don't provide like what's your um, disaster recovery plan is always an interesting one. Um, you can go ahead too. If you yeah, I mean, I think there's sometimes there's some permission to play ones, right? Like I would imagine uh, any modern company today uh, that, that deals with technology would have some sort of disaster recovery plan. Uh, I, I think some of the ones that I don't particularly like are uh, related to seeing financials. I mean, I can understand why a company would want to understand your financial strength. The, the, the whole goal of that question is, will you be around three years from now? If we like your service, are you going to be here? We want to make sure you're healthy. And I think there's other ways to express that. Right. I think um, one thing we like to talk about is, you know, we can provide ranges rather than exact numbers. Um, I think that's a good indicator that people might be looking for. Definitely. Yeah, I think that that's, that, that's one question that I think irritates me a little bit. Uh, I don't know that, you know, because we, we talk about, you know, what is the goal, right? I mean, I, th I think when a procurement person issues an RFP, it's a lot of work on their end, too. You know, they have to figure out who they're going to invite and what questions are they going to ask. And sometimes it's out of the blue. I mean, what I would suggest is I know that we provide a uh, template or a translation RFP template on our site. I, I would suggest people to at least look at that. We make some suggestions for some good questions and hopefully that helps alleviate the work. But um, the bottom line is, I think, that they're trying to get to who they think is the most qualified supplier and at the best price. And I think sometimes those are competing interests. Um, you know, certainly what we've seen from time to time is that the RFP boils down to who's the cheapest. And I think, this is just me, but I, I think if that is really your goal, I would say that you just say that up front. <laughs> right, because like we mentioned earlier, um, the companies put a lot of effort into presenting and answering an RFP. So really, if it's all about price, you really need to make that known so that 
they won't really waste their time trying to tell you all these other bells and whistles they might have when it's really just going to be who is the cheapest provider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. And I think it's it's interesting to n- note as well, you should really use it as a learning experience. I guess if I were a procurement person, I might even try to dig a little deeper and maybe spend a little bit of money and ask to do a sample project. But a lot of times people will say, hey, can you do these two paragraphs for free? We want to evaluate. And I think maybe that's not the best way. If it were me, I would maybe pick a small live press release and ask them to do it um, almost as a real job. Go ahead and quote it. Go ahead and you know bill us. I, I really want to see the full experience. You know What reporting are you going to offer? I think that that's you know, maybe a, a, a better way. And I think um, it's also interesting to, to think about, you know, is the goal to, you know, do you have enough volume? Is the goal to have two providers or is it one? I mean, these are all things that I think people have to think about, you know, right. when they're doing the RFP. I mean, certain companies who have, you know, their list of qualified vendors that they provide to their employees, their employees can go there and pick their translation companies from who knows, maybe five or 10 providers. Um, but to your point about the, um, kind of doing a sample project. I really like that idea too because it gives you an idea of the whole process of what working with that company is going to be like rather than just what's your price. So that really gives you um, a little insight into how the process would work should you choose them as your provider. And I think I think there's all too much sort of the idea of winning and losing. In other words, um, you know, it might make sense. And I, have, I haven't seen this approach, but I think, again, something that I might suggest. In fact, I want to lean a little bit on my Remote past, I used to be a translation buyer, so I have a little bit of experience. I'm not only on this side of the uh, equation. Uh, I used to buy translation at a medical device manufacturer, so I know a bit about this. You know, why can't there be two winners? In other words, maybe you keep two in the loop for six months and you see who does the best job. You can certainly make them share translation memory resources, and you can say, hey, whoever does the best work, whoever we have the best working relationship with is going to win. It may even be a shorter period of three months, but I think all too often, Success isn't defined. You know, what does success look like? I, I mean, do you have anything to add on that? Like, what would you think, Patrick? You know, what, what does success look like for, for a supplier when they're done? Yeah, I mean, certainly to your point earlier, too, though, maybe even certain departments might prefer a certain provider over the other. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a company-wide decision, drawing a line in the sand and say, we can only use this provider. Maybe, you know, corporate communications likes to work with this provider because they're faster. Maybe an engineering team likes to work with this provider because they have more technical jobs. So it's really, I mean, you can get benefits from having multiple providers too. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. You know, we have some clients that are, you know, very large multinational corporations and the type of work they do is very different. There's translation of website content, there is the corporate communications work, or there's uh, e-learning. So there's really, you know, different disciplines that come come into play. So I think that, that probably needs to be captured in, in the procurement effort and, um, you know, somehow factored in how, on the questions that they ask. Right. And then, like you're saying, you know, how do you define success? That's really going to depend on who's requesting the projects, who's sending work. So then they, as the requester, maybe a little bit different from the procurement people who are fielding the RFP, they'll know what success looks like. They'll know what a good project is. Is it the fastest turnaround? Is it the cheapest person? Um, you know, really, it's really important to define what success means to you as a buyer before you go into the RFP so you know what to look for. Um, I thought we could transition a little bit as well, Patrick, into, you know, what are some of the things that people are going to use for evaluation? What are some of the factors? You know, obviously price. We talked a little mm-hmm. bit about price. 
uh, quality is a concern. Yeah, so for that, people might have their internal resources reviewing work so they kind of get a feel for what the translator, um, how they work, and what kind of output they're going to be receiving. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Patrick, if I were asking you about price, hey, what does translation cost? What are some of the factors? Because I think all too often people want to just look at, hey, what's your cost per word? Mm -hmm. What's the next question? What are the next things they should be thinking about? Yeah, so the next thing that you should be asking is, um, one, do you use translation memory? And the answer should 100% be yes. And then the next one is, what sort of discounts do I get on translation memory? So project one might be at that per word cost that you're seeing, but projects two, three, and four, over time as you build more memory, the price will go down per word with those discounts for translation memory matches. And, and I think, you know, as a follow-up, you know, the, the, the client should ask, you know, how do you report that? You know, how does that, you know, what does that look like on a quotation? What sort of level of transparency do I see? And do you report that data to me on a quarterly basis and on, on an annual basis? How do I... How do I see my discount come back to me? Exactly. I think it goes back to measuring success. I mean, I, I think as a buyer of translation, you have to look at that long-term cost per word um, versus what that gross cost per word is. What is my net cost per word? How much am I saving? You know, those are all important factors. Right. And that we have clients, too, that over time, they're paying, you know, 40% on the dollar of every, or on their per word pricing. So over time, the prices move significantly down. Exactly. Very important to measure, you know, what the long-term effects of that translation memory are. What about quality? What would you tell a client who says, you know, listen, um, you know, these are sort of table stakes, right? Um, everybody says they do great, great work, and they have phenomenal customer service. Everybody says that. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how, how do you measure that? So you're a buyer of translation. How do I measure if your quality is any good? Right. So um, a lot of people will measure it by having an internal resource who speaks the language review the work, um, maybe on a pilot project or a sample. Um, but what's nice is with translation memory, we can integrate any feedback from that reviewer into the memory. So then our team starts to learn the, you know, how your team likes it, and then we can kind of stick to that model and keep that rolling through over time. You know, I think that's that's a really good point because all too often, especially for those that are new to the translation game, you know, if you so, show someone a translation, say it's a colleague, you know, there's we, we've done a podcast on internal review, but it's very important to understand that that feedback should be looked at as constructive feedback and you should work with your provider say, all right, how do we how do we implement these changes? What are the nature of the changes? I mean, you shouldn't always jump to a conclusion to think that there are errors that could be stylistic. Right. When you receive feedback, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's errors or issues. It's maybe a different way of saying the same thing. Or maybe your reviewer doesn't necessarily like the English text, so they went a little bit, you know, straying away from the source. So really it's important to know what feedback you're getting and what that feedback means. And... Um, Moving to customer service, another table stake or another sort of permission to play um, attribute. How do you, you know, how would you how would you convince a client, or what are some of the things you'd look at for customer service or responsiveness? Mm-hmm. What are some of the factors you'd yeah. look at? So um, one would be um, how long does it take to get a quote, which is really going to depend on what type of project you're receiving. But you know, how quickly are your requests responded to? If there are feedback or issues, are those attended to quickly? Um, just it's on a case-by-case basis of, you know, maybe like you mentioned before, an e-learning project might take longer than a press release. Um, so it's really understanding how long things might take. That's great. I think setting proper expectations are important there as well. Um, you know, there are certain types of projects that can move, like you say, very quickly. Quotes can move very quickly, but there are others that can't. So mm-hmm. I, 
I think that's a great one. Um, uh, in our show notes, we also talk a little bit about global global presence. You know, that's one that sort of bugs me a little <laughs> bit. Uh, if I could speak to that one, you know, all too often in these RFPs, you know, we'll hear, well, we went with X uh, translation provider because they have 30 offices uh, overseas and they're really going to do a better job of covering our needs. And I think, again, this is really important to understand, you know, how does that impact you? So if if you're a multinational firm and 90% of your employees are in, in the United States and 100% of your requests are going to come out of the U.S., how does it help that there's an office in France? Or to, in my mind, that's adding number one. That's adding overhead. You know, number two. Um, you know, some of that is a bit of a sham. You know, there are some agencies that have you know a sales rep in a in in a tiny room, or they have a sales rep that works out of home. And hey, that's great. We have an office. For me, as a buyer, my bottom line would be, how does that help me? Right now, if you have offices in all of those different locations, and they're going to be making requests. But understand where the production facilities are. In other words, where where is the production occurring? You know, if the translators, if the so for example, our model, which I think is a common model in our industry, is our project managers are all centrally located, but our translators are spread out all over the world. So if you have a rush project, that's not a problem. We can handle that. We can do we do a translation in country in Japan. They can work overnight and get you something in the morning. That's not an issue. So you know, dig a little bit deeper on that global presence question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that procurement people like that one a lot, but I think I would dig a little deeper. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, one? it really. I mean, does a global presence benefit you? I mean, if you're sending requests to six different people, are they going to follow the same procedure on your project? Will it, the output, if you give the same project to six people, be the same? So that really, um, at least for me, I would value consistency on that. So I would rather have maybe one or two project managers that would be, you know, my team, and I would send everything to them. So maybe chucking it over the fence to another country just so it could get done overnight might not be the best idea. Fair enough. And, you know, we've spent a fair amount of time of talking about some don'ts. Um, how about some do's? I mean, is there is there a question that you like the best, or I, I mean, I, we, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but reflecting on that again, is there a question, um, one question that you think has to be in every RFP? Yeah, I would circle back to the aspect of translation memory and how that would benefit me because every agency should be using it and it should the benefit should be passed along to the client. So really making sure and hammering down on that, that you will receive some sort of benefit from your company using translation memory. Yeah, that's good. I like that. And to build on that, for me, I would say, uh, how do how do you as an agency report those savings back to me? How do you show that on a proposal? How do you show that in quarterly reports? Can I get uh, weekly or monthly reports to show the effectiveness of the memory? I think that you know I would dig into reporting. Um, so um, and because uh, across the board, usually you know the. The price, quality—you know—how fast can you work? Industry standards exist for a reason, and a lot of companies will be pretty close to those. So, you might see a lot of similar responses there. But where some companies might set themselves apart is how they save you money, how they save you time. Um, switching gears a little bit. So let's fast forward to—you know—you get to the point where you, as a buyer, really like what you see out of a couple of vendors, and. Now it's sort of come down to, these are my two favorites. Now I'm kind of competing on price. How do you feel about a buyer saying, um, hey, you're down to the last two, uh, but your prices are about 5% off? I mean, is that 
Is that something that, as someone who works on these RFPs, is that something that bothers you, or do you appreciate that? Or uh, It does to a degree. I would say you can get away with asking that maybe once, but if you're asked multiple times to keep lowering your pricing as a provider, maybe that's a red flag that you know they're not so interested in your services as much as your pricing. Um, so that's really where you as a provider may need to draw the line and say, you know, this is our pricing. Um, so it's really difficult to pit vendors against each other kind of after one ask. I would say maybe you get one, and that's about it. Yeah, I think I would agree with that, and I, and I think that's fair. You know, I, I, I actually appreciate that more than, you know, we've done a few RFPs where we can't get feedback, and I feel like that's only fair. In other words, if you're asking my team to put in 20 hours worth of work to do an RFP, um, I think it's fair to ask for feedback. And sometimes the procurement people will just disappear. They won't give you feedback. They would say, ah, they will, we're not really at liberty to do that. Um, for us, that type of activity, we always want to get better. And I, I think that um, any translation service provider that's doing this type of activity, that should be their goal, right? Is you, you do these RFPs, you want to get better and be more competitive. So having a little bit of feedback afterwards is really important. And, and for me, I do appreciate the ability to go back and you know revisit the pricing if it's just a matter of, hey, you're, you're our favorite. We like what you have to offer, but you're a few points off. You have to help us get there. Um, but one ask is probably most right, appropriate. What, what, it could go on forever. Right. right. What might really bother providers if you go, oh, yeah, sure, if you lower your rates 5%, then it'll be, you'll win the RFP. And then you do that, you respond to it, you give them your rates with 5% less, and then you don't hear from them again. So it's kind of yeah. all for naught at that point. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, going a step further, and if we're talking about don'ts or horror stories, um, you know, we actually had one that was a reverse Dutch auction, which um, was probably my least favorite experience. And um, you know, it was interesting. I thought it was actually a little dirty because there was about four vendors that sort of made it into the final four, but there were 20 vendors participating in the reverse Dutch auction. So essentially those other 16 vendors were there to drive the price down, even though they had no hopes of winning the, the contract. And I thought it was probably the most disingenuous thing I'd ever been uh, involved in, especially around pricing. So uh, thankfully we, we bowed out of that. Um, and, and I think, you know, as, as a provider, uh, we should retain, we should retain our ethics and our integrity, and and I th I think procurement people should uh, respect us for that. So right, and to that point too, I mean, we're talking about you know how the process works, and at least in my opinion, there should be one, maybe two rounds in an RFP. So like you mentioned, it shouldn't be oh here's our final four, and then we open the door to twenty again. It should be you know one pairs it your first round pairs it down to two, maybe three providers. You can ask your questions, maybe give a little feedback on pricing, but then after that, really, the decision should be made. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that that makes the most sense. Um, what, are some, what are some reasons that, as a translation service provider, you would say, you know, we, we, we aren't going to participate. This just doesn't make sense for us. Certainly. Um, one of them might be, um, you know, maybe you do participate at the start and then realize that it's not a good fit for you. You start reviewing the questions. Um, and again, maybe it's not a good fit. Maybe it's not the industry that your team specializes in for translation. So maybe if you're, you know, specifically translating medical stuff all the time, maybe a manufacturing RFP might not be the answer for you. That makes sense. Um, do you think that do you think that the size of the firm matters? You know, in other words, you know, if if you're getting a request from a Fortune 500 firm, does the 
translation service provider need to be at that level as well? Do they need to be a publicly traded company with, you know, the 30 offices abroad? Is that is that an indicator in any way of quality or what? what, what is I'd say point? not necessarily. Um, a lot of translation agencies highly utilize the freelance community. So really, a lot of agencies have access to the same people. So um, that that really doesn't change much in that aspect. But I mean, again, it's really what does success look like? Do you want to work with a gigantic company or maybe is a small business okay because they might respond faster? It really is going to depend on what you value and what's going to make you feel better about that. I think that's a good point. I mean, it's fair. I mean, I understand that feeling. You know, there's, there's, you're, you're a Fortune 500 company. You're saying, boy, I just feel more comfortable working with a larger company. I get that, but I think that you're right. The, the decision should um, focus very much on what success looks like, and we do all have very similar models. Whether it's the largest uh, translation corporation, they use freelancers just like we do. They're just basically at a bigger scale, but. Um, I would say, you know, look at responsiveness and project manager turnover. You know, those are things that are really important. For back when I was buying translation, uh, it was annoying to me when I would have to quote unquote retrain another project manager mm -hmm. to handle our requests. So I would say, you know, that's where the size really isn't that important and maybe smaller might be better. Right. And I think it's also important to define that in your RFP when you're fielding it out to agencies make that very clear because a company who's doing maybe 10 million in business a year versus 300 million, they'll still spend a fair amount of time on it. So if you say, you know, you need to have a minimum of X amount of dollars in revenue a year to respond to this RFP, that's going to be, that's going to help you because then number one, you'll get what you're looking for. And number two, other companies won't be spending their time trying to fit a need that they won't fit. And what do you think is fair for an RFP in terms of a timeline? You know, is it, uh, I guess it sort of depends on the size of the, the request and how many questions, but mm -hmm. general guidelines, what do you think? Yeah, I would say um, for your for once you put the RFP out and you get you know a couple of firms interested, I'd say probably about two weeks or so is a good timeline to expect the first response. Uh, then I would say the provider should probably give you as the buyer about two weeks to review all the materials. Um, and then if there is a second round, probably another two weeks. So probably two to six weeks, depending on, you know, obviously, like you said, if there's a large amount of questions, it might take a little bit longer, but I'd say that's a safe bet in terms of uh, each step and how long it should take. Do you think that uh, part of the decision-making team should be someone that's actually going to be requesting the translation? Who do you, who do you think should be involved? Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's going to be the person or people that your translation provider is working with most, a lot of the times what we'll see is procurement will be the ones handling the RFP and then it just gets passed off to the person who's going to be needing translation. Um, so I think it's definitely important for them to be involved, maybe even requesting sample projects like you mentioned to see how the process works. Um, and they might have other valuable input. They might say, oh, this provider's a couple pennies more, but they get it done, they get it done on time, and I'm very happy with their work. So, you know, it's worth it for us to spend a little bit more to stick with this provider. That makes sense. I, I think it is a little bit short-sighted when the people utilizing the services aren't part of the committee. And I do think that they should be accessible to um, the service providers for questions and for understanding and, you know, hearing the pitch. I mean, I, I again, I understand why some actual buyers want to have that shield of procurement. Um, but I do think that there's huge benefits for, um, you know, applying some elbow grease. In other words, getting involved, 
being part of understanding what questions are being asked, you know, answering the questions from the translation service providers, you know, seeing the the pitches, you know, the presentations. I mm -hmm. think that's all very important. Yeah, I think the point you bring up is a very good one that your provider will have questions when you send an RFP, and it's important that the right people are seeing and answering those questions because otherwise you might frustrate the provider because they're going to ask you what they think is a very prudent question, and you're like, eh, that's not important to me. I just need to know your price. So it's really important to have someone, you know, kind of who's boots on the ground, maybe going to be sending projects to see those questions, answer those questions, so the provider knows what they're getting into. And building on that, I think it's important to have a level of transparency. I, I know that there are certain questions that we ask that for some reason, um, don't get answered or there's a hesitancy. And I, I know we've participated in some RFPs where it's very, the procurement people or the people in charge are very tight-lipped. They don't mm -hmm. share any information. And I think one of the questions that our team always asks, um, and if you could comment on it, is you know why the change? So why, why is that important for us as translation service providers to understand where have you been? Mm -hmm. What's happened? What's your experience? Why is that important? Yeah, so it's important, number one, maybe you haven't worked in translation before, so maybe you might need a little bit more of an education on how the processes work. So maybe we can gear our response a little bit more towards a first-time buyer and say, you know, here's a lot of things to consider, here's, you know, our recommendations, and then you kind of run with it from there. Another reason you might be doing an RFP is to switch providers. Maybe you're not happy with your current provider. So why the reason we ask that is so we can take that, see what really hasn't been working for you, and find a way to make it work for you. And um, I know, again, we've, we've kind of bounced before, back and forth between do's and don'ts, and I know one of the things that we have in our show notes is about um, questions that don't apply. And, you know, all too often we get very boilerplate RFPs that, you know, mention some weird questions, uh, if you could comment on that. Yeah, um, one of the interesting ones we've seen is, you know, questions related to either child slavery or toxic waste, and it kind of really doesn't apply to the translation industry at all. Yeah, there, there may be questions that are very focused on the manufacturing process. I mean, I'm, we're, we're happy to comply with, you know, ISO 9001 or 17100 related questions or even 13485, but, you know, understand that, you know, we don't have a uh, a sterile work environment and we don't have to isolate product that's not sterile because again remember we deal in words it's all digital so <laughs> right so it might be a good idea to take a quick sweep of your RFP before you send it out to make sure that everything is going to be applicable because otherwise you might get a lot of responses to the qu those questions that just say NA on them yeah it's a waste of time it, it, and it doesn't to me it doesn't signal that you've put an appropriate amount of energy into the RFP I think it makes sense uh, to do that um, so let's let's talk a little bit about so we get to the end and we talked a little bit about the um, the pricing and you know how if you get to your final two but um, let's talk a little bit about making a comparison on pricing like how do you get an apples to apples comparison because again uh, translation service providers do things differently mm -hmm. and you know while we we all translate and we loosely follow a similar procedure pricing can be all over the map mm -hmm. so how do you how do you how do you do an apples to apples yeah so uh, my recommendation on that is to send um, a project to all of your providers who are under consideration and see what you get back in terms of a quote does it show a per word breakdown does it show the level of service is it translation with humans is it machine translation is there an independent editor kind of 
if you send out for a quote, you'll get a good sense of what everyone is providing you. And you can also straight up ask, say, are you using machine translation? Are you using human translators? Are you using human editors? Kind of making sure you're covering your bases and making sure that, you know, maybe you'll see 30 cents a word from one provider and 10 cents from another. That's a pretty large disparity. So really, what does that, you know, 30 cents per word mean and what does 10 cents per word mean? So um, to close the topic a bit, you know, we talked a little bit on um, sort of getting that honest feedback. Mm -hmm. I, I guess if uh, I could get on my soapbox a bit, I, I, would, I would implore uh, buyers of translation to be very professional on the tail end. Um, and I would actually put this right in the RFP and I would say, listen, we respect your time. We appreciate the time you're going to give us in support of this RFP. And one thing we promise is a debrief at the end to do a little meeting, to give you feedback on what we liked, what we didn't like. Uh, and I think for me, at least, if I would read that in the opening paragraph of an RFP, I would be so impressed with that buyer that I would put even more energy into the RFP because all too often it does feel like we're checking some boxes and we're not really, uh, it's not really an effort to get to the best provider. This is really just someone checking boxes. Right, they may have a provider in mind already and you might be the second provider that they need to pit you against just to say, okay, we got two providers to do this RFP, but we already knew we were going with this one. So it's kind of having that in there and saying like, we'll talk to you afterwards, we'll let you know why, why you, number one, why you won, or number two, why you didn't win. Um, so it's either way, I think it's an important step to have that kind of debrief at the end. Definitely. So Patrick, let's, uh, let's do quick recap. What is your biggest takeaway? What would be your number one suggestion? Uh, I would say to really put a lot of effort into your RFP and really define what success looks like. What is a good provider going to provide for you? And really focus on that through your questions. And I'm going to lean on, we did an RFP for a medical device manufacturer. So for me, the biggest tip is, um, I really liked what this, what this uh, manufacturer did, is they put the questions in a spreadsheet and they put the answers uh, in and in basically each company had its own column. And this way they could do a quick scan and basically highlight who won the question essentially. And then they went down the list and looked for who won the most questions. And they took those top two and moved them to the next round and that's when they negotiated pricing. And I think if, if I could make a suggestion, I would say choose who you wanna work with first and then hopefully you can negotiate pricing that fits your model. Uh, I, I think um, that would be a good approach. So thank you very much for uh, joining us for this episode of Translation Confidential. And until next time, uh, good luck with your next RFP.